Welcome to the Laity Podcast, a space for meaningful conversations about Christian spirituality, discovery, and practice. Thanks for joining in. We're missing people because we're so quick to give advice without ever making room for them to actually to discover what are they living? What are they feeling? What are they experiencing? What happened to them? What impact did that have on them? And because we don't have that kind of environment, we give advice to things people aren't thinking about or feeling. You know, so it's, it's, it's always so interesting to me. If, if I believe different than someone, I'm a heretic. But I'm, but I'm not a heretic if I violate core Christian practices. Hey friends, welcome to another episode of the podcast. Really grateful to have you as always. I wanted to just make a special comment for those of you who are being immediately affected by the coronavirus, either yourself, close friends or family members that have contracted the illness, um, and all of us who are living in this new reality of quarantine, uh, at least in this country and in many others, uh, certainly our hearts go out to you and Frankly, I think this conversation is really well suited for that environment. We had the privilege of speaking with Justin Fry last Thursday. Justin is a really good friend of mine, someone I've gotten to know well over the last two years or so. He's a pastoral care pastor at Grace Midtown Church here in Atlanta on the west side. And uh, we had a great conversation talking about spiritual formation, about the church, uh, some of our background personally, and looking ahead uh, to how best to leverage this time to grow close to God and and one another. Hope you enjoyed the episode. As always, subscribe. Uh, Feel free to share with others, and we're grateful for your time. Hi, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Laity Podcast. Really glad to have you here. Hope everyone is doing well, and I mean that you know probably more sincerely than in the past. Obviously, we're in the middle of of COVID, and some of us have been you know three weeks locked in, other at home, quarantined. Others have been longer than that. Um, thinking about, in particular, actually a couple of folks that I know are regular listeners up in up in New York, and some folks on the West Coast as well. So, our thoughts, hearts with you, and we're going to talk, I think, a little bit about this, but want to start by just introducing Justin Fry, who is here with us. Uh, Justin, how are you on the other side of Atlanta? Yeah, yeah, I'm on the west side of Atlanta. Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, great to have you. Um, I'll let Justin introduce himself after I just say, um, you know, very much selfishly excited to have Justin on as a guest. Um, Justin is a pastor um, at Grace Midtown Church here in Atlanta. Um, Not only that, but he is my pastor, given that's where uh, I attend and am a partner. And uh, Justin's not only a pastor, but a, a really good friend. He also has roots in uh, central Pennsylvania. So my heart goes out to him in a, in a deeper way. Um, and a lot of music scene connections, well, which maybe, maybe some of that will be in here. PA hard. Exactly. Exactly. Two on five. Um, I don't even but, know what's happening right now. Yeah. <laughs> so we've brought the same 837. Sort of am I right? Yeah. Music. <laughs> maybe. I oh, am I right? Uh, yeah, we're going to say you're right. Um, man, Justin, why don't you get, so we're going to talk about, let, let me actually just set this, set a table a little bit here. So we've obviously had a number of episodes recently between David Bentley Hart, Thomas J. Ord, um, and other theologian, scholar, uh, academic sort of authors that have had a lot of great things to say. And I want to go ahead and just give another plug 
to Tom Ward. If you didn't check out our last episode, please do in particular um, as it relates to COVID um, and sort of God's involvement. Um, but that that's all great. And a lot of you, including us, really love those conversations. Uh, at the same time, we try to also stay close to you know the laity, kind of real life, flesh and blood, discipleship, life in the church, et cetera. And so, Justin, part of why you know wanted to be able to have a conversation with you a, as a friend and, and, and B, as a pastor and someone that's a real boots on the ground leader in the city, um, in a in a local church and, and leading um, in the kingdom. And I feel like this is going to hopefully yield some some fruit across the board for all of us, just as we as we engage in some discussions about church, about spiritual formation. Um, and we'll see sort of what else the spirit leads to here. But I'll stop talking. Justin, do you mind introducing yourself? Give a little bit of a little bit of background. We'd love to understand maybe a little of your church heritage. Um, and then ultimately what brought you down to uh to Atlanta? Yeah, I'd love to. Like like you said, I'm a I'm a pastor at, at Grace Midtown Church here in Atlanta, more specifically, a pastoral care pastor. And so my work largely is about sitting with people and listening to them process their life and their faith and their vocation and how those things intersect and hopefully asking them good questions and holding the appropriate kind of space for them to be able to do that. I've been married 11 years. I've got a five-year-old and a four-year-old and the three of them are the absolute joy of my life. We're from Pennsylvania. And so perhaps like most people in Atlanta, we're not from here, but Atlanta is our home. We love, 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 love being here in Atlanta. And the way we ended up here was, you know, probably the short of it is we had been married for five years, living in central Pennsylvania, where we had always lived a part of a community that felt like the kinds of people you would take a bullet for, and you knew they would take a bullet for you. And in a lot of ways had what people are looking for when they think about the kind of community they want when they're asking themselves, what does a faith community look like? But there was something in us sort of a God nudge to leave what was familiar to leave our home and to move to a city. And we didn't know what city and we didn't know what that would look like, what we would be doing. But in faith, we kind of stepped out and found ourselves in Atlanta. I had some friends who were living here. And so we came to visit them for about, for a 10 day trip. And as we were here, we were meeting people and, eating at all the restaurants around the city that we could and, and just fell in love with Atlanta, fell in love with the people and felt like this is where, where God was, was leading us. And I'm using that, that leading because I, my back church background is a Pentecostal charismatic background. And so we, we're, we've got a value at the center of our family to be asking what's God saying, how's God leading us? How's God active in the day to day of our life? And, and so Grace Midtown is, is the church that we landed at very quickly. And what I loved about Grace was it felt like it was this place where it could hold the tension of parts of me and parts of things I'm passionate about, parts of my faith that are meaningful to me that other places couldn't. And what I mean by that is, is there, there was a space for my Pentecostal charismatic background and influence, but there was also a space for the part of me that cares deeply about justice work. And there is a space for the part of me that cares deeply about 
the way Catholic mystics have influenced my spirituality. And there was room for the way Mm. Eastern Orthodox theology has informed the way I think about God and tradition and theology. And there was there. So there was room for those things in a way that I had not experienced in other church settings, which was really appealing. And of course we were a little older. I think when we, when we got here, when I got to Atlanta at Grace Midtown, probably the average age at Grace Midtown was 25 to 27. And I was in my mid thirties at the time. And so there was just a space for my wife and I to have people in their mid twenties in our home and, and create room for them to process all the things folks in their mid twenties are processing. And that felt really good to us too, because we weren't looking for a church experience where we would just go and sort of consume whatever was happening on a Sunday. We really wanted to be somewhere that we could participate in a meaningful way in the life of the church. And it's, Mm -hmm. we found very early on, we could do that at Grace Midtown. And then through that somehow, I think mostly because they just needed to up the average age of the staff and downgrade the average cool (laughs) hip factor that, that yeah. I got, I got hired. I think wanted someone that could grow a beard, and you know, so <laughs> that's when I'm on staff. Yeah. Were you on? Were you on a staff? Were you in a staff role in, in PA at a church? Technically, no. And so, so yeah, I, that, that's the other thing. This Grace Midtown is the biggest church I've I've ever been a part of. I think you could even say right, like probably Grace Midtown's roots are sort of in sort of evangelical, but if you even heard me talk about the other things that have influenced my my faith experience, I, I don't know how many of them would, you would say like their origins are within evangelical Christianity. So, so Pentecostal charismatic, certainly in some ways that's overlap, but in other ways not. And, and then the way Catholic mystics and Eastern or that. And so a lot of my faith has been developed outside of the world of evangelicalism, but here I am squarely. I'm, I'm in Atlanta, which is like an epicenter for it at a, at a church that's deeply influenced by it. But in Pennsylvania, mostly did we did house church uh, in in sort of maybe what people would think of the more common understanding of that, where we were a church without buildings and without a paid staff. We met in one another's homes, and we were all bivocational working other jobs and and creating space and hospitality for one another as we was that a church plant or was it sort of a organic uh kind of just thing that happened both both so the organic thing that happened is my wife and i and two of our mentors and then then two of our friends so there were three couples six of us we started to have this experience in Pennsylvania where um, uh, many of our friends were finding themselves in this space where their trauma that they'd experienced in their childhood was starting to manifest in all different kinds of ways in their life. And as they sought out therapy and the kinds of help that you do in your trauma starts to really manifest, what was discovered was was all of, most of them had some sort of traumatic experience in their childhood. That traumatic experience was almost always sexual in nature. And then all of that was mm. almost always at the hands of a leader within a church. Wow. And so wow. we had this, this, there was this group of people around us who wanted community, 
wanted a place to explore their faith. But as you can imagine, going into a church building was triggering. It was causing them to relive that trauma. It wasn't safe for them to be in that environment. But they didn't want to throw away their faith either. But they wanted a space to be mad about what happened to them. They wanted a space to process all the questions you have when those experiences happen to you, to be angry at God. And so these, these three couples, and really it was the other two couples that spearheaded this thing, and, and two of them are mentors of my wife and I, and kind of said, hey, this organic thing's happening. Let's just create space in our living rooms for people to share their stories, to, ex- to explore their faith, to create room for one another, to live life together in meaningful ways while we do that. And, and so we followed along and, and learned a lot. And, and it really did. It's, I, don't, I don't think it started. It didn't start as a church plant, right? Like it wasn't a strategy room where, where we were like, hey, you know, it'd be a really good strategy to plant a church is like find some people with trauma and then create a space for them mm-hmm. to process that. Like, no, I mean, that, that was like a million miles away from us. It, it really was this organic thing of let's make, we're going, Hey, we don't have, we don't feel like a need to have to be like in buildings and have paid staff and titles and all that stuff. Like let's just be the body of Christ together for the sake of, of our friends and see what happens. And then I think a year into that, maybe a little longer, you start to realize this, this is actually my church. Like in the sense of this is, this is what a church mm-hmm. is. This is what it means to be the body of Christ. And, and so some would have said maybe that it wasn't their church because they just weren't in a, an emotional place to be able to be able to even talk that way. And then others would have very much so said this, this is my church. Hmm. Did you just kind of as an aside, did you grow up like as a kid with the, in your, in your media family in, in church? I did. Yeah. So I, my parents met Jesus in their late 20s through the Jesus People Movement, and I came along three or four years later, and so, yeah, I grew, Can you grew give up a brief in a Christian home. explanation of what that is, the Jesus Movement? Yeah, so the Jesus Movement was, was what, I guess in the 70s, late 60s, throughout the 70s, especially on the West Coast, there seemed to be this spirit inspired movement among young people, especially what would have been probably at the time called hippies and outsiders. And tons of young people were coming to faith in Jesus, powerful conversion experiences, signs, wonders, miracles, those kinds of things. I think, uh, I think the vineyard church movement was eventually born out of that. I think the Calvary chapel movement was born Mm -hmm. out of that that movement, both of them on, on the West coast. If I'm getting, I, I might be wrong with the history, probably someone listening on your podcast will correct me if I am, but I'm pretty sure those two movements came out of the Jesus people movement. And my parents probably would have been a little more in that vineyard esque side of things. So yeah, I grew up, grew up going to church for like five days a week, <laughs> you right. know, Sunday, oh, Sunday yeah. school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, small group, Friday night, family hangout. And then there was probably something else in there every week that was just random. Was there a time in your life through adolescence, even coming through that experience you described in Pennsylvania, where, where that was there a, a particular season that you would describe as sort of deconstructive with a particular events 
or things that had happened in, in your life, church-related or, or not, in your walk with God, w- w- that you would say, yeah, this was my time of sort of unraveling and re-raveling the faith or particularly, you know, defining moment for you, moment or moments, seasons? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a lot of conversation around that that word deconstruction, and I'm probably not the right guess to give meaning to it. But I would say as a pastor, I'm sitting with people going through that all the time. And it would be helpful to say that I think we, we want to make space and room and gentle space for people who are deconstructing or unlearning or reevaluating or struggling with or asking questions of their faith. I think it's an important part of our faith journey. It's an important part of what it means to grow and mature in Christ. I think it's a necessary part of our journey. And so, yeah, in especially in my late teens, early 20s, and I, and I don't think this is uncommon. I think it's even related in a lot of ways right. to that stage of life where the words that I heard in church and even the words that I heard my parents use and what those words meant, I had to evaluate what they meant to me. And I had to, some sometimes with anger, sometimes with frustration, sometimes with sadness, wrestle with a lot of even the cultural implications of, of what it meant to be a part of a, of a charismatic Pentecostal church, right? right? Like simple thing. It sounds simple, but like, do you have to vote Republican to be a Christian? But those were, th- that would have been an, an unspoken, but certainly truth with, within the church that I grew up in and the tradition that I grew mm-hmm. up in. And at some point you, you're reading the Bible and you're going, it, maybe I've got to question some of that. So, th- so, th- so there were some of the cultural things I had to let go of. There, there were just some theological things that that y- you have to explore on your own. You have to make your faith your own, and I think the only way to do that is often to evaluate the faith that's been handed to you. Yeah. Were, were there specific, I guess, kind of points of tension? I mean, you mentioned the whole like you have to vote, vote Republican thing, but were there any, was there anything kind of personally for you that was a a specific? point of tension that that began that process yeah so yeah absolutely so i i I think probably you know somewhere in my teen years i read dietrich bonhoeffer's the cost of discipleship and and probably understood none of it (laughs) right (laughs) you know so i want to make that clear it was not like some 16 year old theological genius reading the, the cost of discipleship like I, I read it because it. Someone told me it was a smart book to read, and because I was woefully failing out of high school, wanted to do something that felt smart, you know. And so, <laughs> you know, read the cost of discipleship, and, and in many ways was was very much influenced by Dr. Martin Luther King and his theology. I, I wouldn't have had that language then, but but as I I look back, very much his his theology and practice influenced my my faith a ton, and so those ideas around what is the Sermon on the Mount and the way the Sermon on the Mount is to be lived by Christians, to form Mm. Christians, that way of life in the world, a nonviolent way of life, if I'm just to be right on the nose with it, that nonviolent way of life felt so right and beautiful to me. But it wasn't what I heard every Sunday. It certainly wasn't what I heard within the Christian community I was a part of or the broader American um, Christian community that I was aware of. 
And so there, there was a lot of, and, and of course in my teen years, there was the Gulf war and all those kinds of things. And so th- that, that stuff was very catalytic for me going, it, how, how am I wrestling out my faith in a real day-to-day practical way as I sort of read the new Testament as I'm understanding these guys like Bonhoeffer and Dr. King to be teaching the new Testament. And then just what I'm experiencing in American Christian culture. Mm -hmm. Great. I'm so curious how, so I want to get, I want to go on a short just thought here. Uh, but the question sort of before that is so curious how you, that journey that you had in particular is informing how you show up as a, not only in your personal faith journey, but in as a pastoral care pastor at a church that is predominantly younger individuals. I imagine many of which kind of either have either gone through that, that type of journey uh, or in the middle of it, or have it have it coming on the horizon. But you know, so Stephen and I and Justin, we've obviously talked about this a little bit offline. But you know, Stephen and I grew grew up in a you know relatively conservative, albeit you know rapidly expanding and growing um, tradition um, within Church of Christ related um, movement that was really also really big in sort of seventies, eighties, and was at one point like the fastest growing um, Christian movement like in the nineties um, globally and. Whereas, you know, I think there was a, just a ton of growth, a ton of focus on being outward focused, missional, um, and knowing scriptures, taking discipleship seriously, a number of really incredible things that frankly shaped who we are today. It's so interesting now being on this side of just th- this side of, of that. So that movement, you know, it's, it still exists um, and a lot of, you know, a little bit more autonomously kind of independent churches, although there is still sort of a parent organization, much less centralized, I think in probably a healthy way. Um, and that being said, I think folks have had a bit more freedom, right, to sort of to come, to go. And and folks that are in our, that are our age, right, early 30s that sort of grew up either were in college, you know, within um, this tradition or, you know, we're a part of really rapidly growing churches or even our uh, kid, you know, children, offspring of of people that were in the ministry, right at a time where they were, you know, baptizing tons of people and evangelistic sermons and conferences and just a lot of energy and a lot of God things that were happening. Um, coming out of the other side of that, you're in your early 30s. You're working a, a a corporate job or you're working a services job. You don't have sort of that discipler, pastor, leader kind of on you. You don't go to church five times a week. You don't have someone mentoring. Um, or mandating, excuse me, that you're at midweek service and devotionals on Fridays and church on Sunday morning. Um, and yet a lot of that structure is gone and then life happens, relationships happen. There's just this reality of like, wow, there's uh, you know more to the story of, of life than what maybe my, my limit, semi-limited insular experience. Um, and it's just wild because I'm looking at my peers and some of which are like really, you know, some very close friends, some people I was in college with other people that, you know, I was at their weddings, um, folks that I maybe know from, from a distance and dude, just like the, just people are just like, are just leaving in, in droves. Like people are like, and this is just my, this is Andrew's opinion. So for folks listening that like know my background or know, this is just me and my people. Like I'm watching so many people whose marriages are falling apart, who are divorced, you know, less than two or three years into, 
into marriage who are, you know, totally, you know, like we're like involved in college and they're like, you're getting a taste of what else is out there, or maybe have been turned off by the church or that are just, that are gone. And like the, the vast majority of my peers are, are gone. And by, when I say gone, I mean, they're not in church or some folks that are maybe kind of in church or not in our tradition or totally disinterested in spirituality. And Stephen and I talk all the time. I feel like we just didn't give, like we as, as leaders or like we did not equip people to go through this journey and like really preparing people for true formation and discipleship and sort of this long run journey um, to deal with the realities of life, either theological questions that come up or people or places or circumstances that, that disrupt or sort of breach your understanding of God or understanding of the scriptures um, or, you know, folks that have were hurt and that actually had like really bad experiences or maybe others that just didn't actually build a foundation that, that would last. And um, I know I'm rambling, but that, and it's like painful. It's like hard. Like, I'm like, man, I just like, how do we equip people? And, And I guess a couple of things, have you seen any of this? Is this just, is this a common thing in 2020? Like I know people are leaving church on some level or have, any particular thoughts on my experience and kind of what I've witnessed? Have you experienced anything like that? And sort of what is your take on sort of how the church has or even hasn't like really equipped folks for this journey and for for discipleship in the long run, for real spiritual formation, for the inevitable deconstruction or the dark nights or, you know, of the soul that that are going to profoundly impact us? And so often we're not necessarily coming out on, on the other side. Yeah, it's a... <clears throat> I guess that was no, a question. I, I, yeah, it's a good question. It's an important question. It's it's one I, I am hesitant to respond to in, in part, because, and, and I will respond to it, but my hesitation would be, I, I think everyone's story is so unique that even though there is seems to be this common experience of people, quote unquote, leaving church, what I would guess is there's so many different reasons why that's happening and what's going on in those lives that, that, that in many ways, I wonder if that's, if if that's where the church has not done a great job of. And what I mean by that is of creating space for people to ask those questions and be in that process and to struggle with their faith and to struggle in their marriages Mm -hmm. and to struggle with their parents their parenting to where they could do that openly and unashamedly in an, in, a, in non-judgmental spaces that, that could hold that because I, th- I think our faith isn't something that's so fragile that we can't be in a room full of people asking questions about it or having experiences that are hard. And so I wonder if we can, if we can create some space that does that. I think too, I I've, I just think of my own life. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm 41, so I'm not that old, but I've, I've lived some life now. And I think of myself in my teen years and, and I think people would have said, Oh, there's, there's Justin, another one that's left the faith because he left church in my early twenties. I think you could have said, well, there's Justin, another one who left the church, came back, but left again what's going on there. And I think in some ways I had to leave the church to find the church, I had to leave the church to find Jesus. I think that was a part of my journey and a part of my process. And I think being okay with the slow and long work of God in people's lives, not having a, 
five-year or a 10-year space for thinking about how they're living their faith, but a, but a, a lifelong space for how they are wrestling out and living living their faith. And so I, I think in some ways thinking about it in those ways has been, has been really helpful for me to create a gentleness and a compassion for people who have really good questions, really hard circumstances, really real struggles, really real traumas, really, really bad stuff has happened to them. That's more than anyone can bear. A lot of those things beyond their control and not their fault. Some of it, decisions they made that they're reaping the consequences for. But even in in that, those choices coming from places of fear and wounding that they've never had a space to give voice to or heal from. And, And so I don't know if that's a silver bullet, but it sure feels beautiful to me. How do you... So as a pastor, right, with someone that is responsible, like as a shepherd, someone that is in part responsible for a flock, right, for people and wanting the best for people and want, wanting people to be close to God, wanting folks to live this life to the full and to be reaping the fruit of the spirit and yet valuing freedom and journey and space and tension. Um, I once heard you say in a, in a class you were giving that like in general, you, you try, you didn't say it this way, but essentially you don't really, you're not really in the advice giving business. Like that's not, you know, we should be giving people, and I'd love for you to comment on this and expound. We shouldn't be so much focused or at all focused on giving folks advice, but rather, and how I interpret it is rather meeting folks in the journey and sort of, you know, asking questions, allowing folks to sort of walk this themselves. And at the same time, again, from your position, how do you, what's your posture with people that are on those journeys where maybe the path that they want to take, right? Do you value the freedom, even if the the, the path that they might have in mind is not in church, right? It's leaving um, or it's, you know, potentially going down a path that you don't think is going to reap the kind of fruit that that would be most beneficial how do you handle that tension with people yeah i would have said something like that so i'm I'm glad you remembered most of the time people remember two percent of what you say i think in a in a setting like that so what good job that was good you're basically like here's my advice don't give anybody the irony of that right now i like that um yeah i love that and I think on one hand, right, like we all have a, we, we have a story and experiences and, and an expertise in areas that our voice and story matters. And so when I, when I say, Hey, don't give advice, I'm not saying don't share from your experience, your perspective or your story, something that might help someone and people don't know what they don't know. And so there, there are moments where we, we just have to, to the best of our ability, inform people of, of some things. And I, and I have a responsibility for that. Some of what I do in my role is teach. And that's about informing people as they're on this, on a journey of formation. Right. But I think what, what we so often do in the church is we're so quick to give advice before we ever create a space for people to belong and be accepted right where they are, as they are on their journey. And, and mm-hmm. what, what the way I want to live and the way that I think we see Jesus living is he's, he's inviting people to join him and allowing them to make a choice about whether or not they join him. And he's not coercing them to do it. 
the, the rich young ruler comes to him and asks a really good question. What do I need to do to follow you? And Jesus gives a really clear answer and clarity is kindness. But the man has Mm. given the choice to walk away and it says his heart broke, but Jesus lets him walk away. And that's about respecting the dignity in people to make choices, to not coerce because the, the, the means is the end. If I coerce people to do my thing in the name of anything else, really just what I have is coercion at the end of the day. I don't have a real faith. I have a coerced mm. faith. But if I can create space for people to discover Jesus as we ask questions around story and their questions and what they've experienced, then I think we're on a path to get to a, a, a truer understanding of, of, or a person is, is in a space where they can get to a truer understanding of, of who they are and what they believe. Because I think faith is so much about discovering what's, what's inside of you and, and developing that. And so, mm-hmm. yeah. And advice giving is not working. Church is really good at giving advice, multi-million dollar industry and in giving advice and people are still leaving. Yeah. Mm. yeah actually, I kind of want to, I want to talk about that yeah, for a minute because I was, I've, I've been sitting here thinking, <clears throat> excuse me, um, about you know those friends Andrew that you and I have, and uh, for for a lot of them, the advice, the answers, and it's not, you know, we're not bashing any particular tradition. I think this is no, it, it seems like this is broadly a, a common thing um, with with people of our uh, of our generation. Um, is that those the the a lot of the answers um or the advice just starts to kind of buckle under the weight of people's lived experiences um and so yeah. you know people i i had a friend of mine who i was talking to not long ago um and he, and he was actually a, a guy that i'd mentored when he was in college and um he uh he is, he's, he's, you know, not really in church right now, still trying to figure out uh, what he thinks about, uh, how, you know, spirituality and how to live a life and what do you do with the Bible. And, um, but he, he's, he's definitely kind of had this withdrawn approach. And my question is, or I guess really it's more my concern is, um, I mean, obviously I think people need that time, but then at the, they need time and space to do that. But then there's, I think importantly, I, I I don't know that our identity or who we are is something that we can just go and find entirely on our own. Um, so like, how does, how do, how do we become the kind of community in which people can find that part of their identity that you can only ever find in the giving of yourself to another person. Cause it, cause it seems to me that, that that's, that's kind of my big pushback with, with people who, um, who, uh, you know, when they ultimately just kind of leave and pack their bags, I mean, I, I create all kinds of space for it, but at the same time, there's Bonhoeffer says, you know, that there's uh, I think it's in, in, in the, uh, coffee discipleship. He mentions that basically that the truth of Christianity, it's not propositional. It's only ever discovered in, in obedience. Yeah. 
yeah. to basically to the Sermon on the Mount. And so it's only ever in the context of a community that is actually living out this sort of Sermon on the Mount kind of life that that I think people can ultimately find th- that part of who they're made to be, which is somebody giving themselves to someone else. Um, yes. So how how do you walk people... How do you kind of walk that line, giving them space, but then also recognizing that, like, you know, you you can you can wander at sea forever. Yeah, you sure can. By the way, I love that. I, growing up in Central Pennsylvania, the the Mennonites have been such a huge presence and influence on my life, and they they have that idea, the hermeneutic of obedience, that you can't really understand the text until you obey it, which I just think is brilliant and comes from Bonhoeffer. So anyway, that's a side note. Yeah, I I. Uh, I, th- I think part of what the making room for others does is actually model first what it looks like to give ourselves to other people. So it begins to open up an experience for them of this is actually what it looks like to be in community. You belong here already as you are. You don't need to do anything else to be a part of who we are. We're going to love you because you're worthy of love, because you're made in the image of God with that kind of dignity, with that kind of worth, with that kind of value, and we're going to treat you as such. And and I think that experience actually begins to impact people in a way that they change their mind. They repent about what Christian community is and how they can be a part of it and why they would even want to be a part of it. And then I would say this, part of what we're doing by asking questions is you, you said this really great made this really great statement where you said, what happens when the faith people have been taught like buckles under their lived experience? And I think, it, I think in a lot of ways, it, it, it buckles because we've, we've not been able to name our lived experience. So people are giving us advice mm-hmm. to questions they think we're asking, but they're missing the questions we're actually mm-hmm. really asking. Yeah. So we're we're missing wow. people yeah. cuz we're so quick to give advice without ever making room for them to actually to discover what are they living? What are they feeling? What are they experiencing? What happened to them? What impact did that have on them? And because we don't have that kind of environment, we give advice to things people aren't thinking about or feeling or asking. But I think when and so for me in the pastoral care field, what I'm doing is part of what I'm doing, if I'm, if I'm meeting with someone for you know, an hour, I'm probably listening for 50 minutes of that time, hopefully. Because I want to make sure that I'm speaking to the thing that they're really wrestling with, that they're really asking. But that takes time because a lot of times they don't even know. We're strangers to ourselves. Even a lot of how we process what's happened to us is based on how we think everyone else thinks we should process this, which I think is why a lot of people can even leave the church because there's an expectation for how they should deal with the fracture in their marriage or their mm. or what they're feeling shame about around their parenting or what happened to them as a child. And because they can't respond in that way anymore, they pack up and move on. Because there's a response expectation. So I, th- I think we need so, – so, yeah, so it's not that we want – I don't want people to wander at sea. In fact, I think what creating space to ask questions is, is saying, 
you don't have to wander at sea anymore. You you can be grounded. You can be grounded mean? right here, right now, in the trust and the love of this relationship as you locate what your questions are in the in midst, the midst of, the of the questions. And yeah, and then as we come along, no, there's not a. No, not a, no you're, sorry, you're probably gonna say it better. <laughs> sorry. I was just gonna say, so you're not like in other words, there's not sort of the outside the camp season for you to figure this out and come back when you're ready. I mean, that, that might need to happen, right? But there's not a, you've sort of poked the bear, come back when you're, when you're, when you've sort of aligned with where we stand, either as a church or leadership or the group, but like there's an immediate acceptance, belonging and space in the, without any sort of repression, denial, ignoring Absolutely. of where someone's really at. I think that's profound. I think that makes a lot of sense. So one of the things that drew me to Midtown, and actually you said the same thing, this ability to sort of sit with, to to sit with some level of, of tension, diversity, um, theological diversity, uh, background, you know, I'm sure even everyone on the leadership team at Midtown, like I'm sure folks are going to think different things about you know, any given theological subject matter. Also, I'm sure there are core sort of doctrinal theological um, things that everyone's aligned on. H- how do you sort of think about that conversation, particularly, you know, theologically, doctrinally alignment, not not so much on a leadership level, but for folks in a given church community. Um, and the backdrop to that question is, you know, we grew up in a tradition that was relatively, you know, everyone was relatively aligned, at least on paper, um, about, you know, 99.5% of, of things. Um, you know, almost, you know, it felt everything was a sort of salvation issue, um, if you will. And, um, where you stood on, you know, plan of salvation, on gifts of the spirit, of, you know, uh, you know role of women, of you know, homosexuality, a- any number of really sort of more controversial topics or more straightforward topics. And it seemed that there was some room for diversity in terms of like, you know, what kind of song, we, and we grew up non acapella. So like there was music and maybe what kind of songs you play and do you do the communion first or the sermon first? Um, and maybe some stylistic or methodological things, but the core sort of fundamental beliefs were relatively aligned. How do you as a leader, as a part of a leadership team, but also dealing with real people in real places, sort of sit with that sort of belief versus lifestyle versus, and, and kind of diversity in, in church? Yeah, that's, golly, I don't, I don't know. You, you know, I, I think for me, the question around that is, is, and maybe it's just because of how I'm wired or the nature of my role is like, well, what do we do when we disagree? So, you know, in Midtown, there's several hundred people who are part of this thing. I think it's foolishness to think that somehow we all disbelieve all the same stuff about everything. And so to me, it's yes, orthodoxy. We want to, we want to take that seriously, but I, but I, I think that's, but we don't want to reduce the Christian life to orthodoxy. I, I think we, I think practice matters and, and I think how we love others matter matters. And, and so those things I think are, are as important, um, as, as orthodoxy, which, which maybe that's a controversial statement, but I, I don't think it is, you know, so it's, it's, it's always so interesting to me that if, if I believe different than someone, I'm a heretic but I'm, but I'm not a heretic if I violate core Christian practices. And, and so, what do you mean? so I can believe, I can believe all the right doctrinal things, but, 
we, you know, during the Reformation had people drowning one another over, over believing core doctrinal things, didn't we? Yeah, orthopraxis yeah, matters. How we practice our faith matters, and how we love people who disagree with us matters. And so, are you orthodox if you're drowning someone who disagrees with you? And so, we're not drowning anyone today, mm. thank God, but we certainly are doing that emotionally. By the way, we kick out, ostracize, shove away people who think and believe differently about th- than we do. And, and so I'm not saying, again, I, I know that can come off as saying like, ah, you know, doctrine doesn't matter. Theology doesn't matter. Those things are actually pretty important to me. Like, like folks that know me personally know those, those things matter. Um, and I think, though, for me, it doesn't matter how we hold the tension, um, how we live a faith you know, Dr. King called it the beloved community. How do we, how, how do we create beloved community? How, how is there room for everyone to be at the table? And that's not to be without conviction. Certainly Dr. King had great theological conviction around issues of justice. They were him and his movement were willing to suffer violence for their conviction but they also had a conviction mm-hmm. around how they love even their enemy and how they practice their convictions. And so, and so that's how I hold the tension of going, we're, we are forming a community on at least those three fronts and they all matter. And I think they especially matter in today's world where everyone wants to, wants you to be on their team. And if you're not on their team, you're out. You know, it's, it's interesting. I, I've got a lot of friends who have left the, the, the sort of evangelical world for the quote unquote, more progressive church world. And they've left a lot of things behind, but in a lot of ways they've kept all the things that were really important to leave behind. The need to be right. Hmm. The, the need to be right. Pasto. The, yeah, the, you don't have a seat at the table if you don't agree with us. You are less than if you don't agree with us. Right? Those kinds of things. And certainly that's that's a common practice within more conservative Christian circles. And so I think I'm more interested because my, I have a theological conviction <laughs> that Jesus is bringing differing people together who would have been uh, in different sort of theological camps together around the table with bread and wine and saying, we're family. How are we going to do this? Yeah, that's great. What do you, um, what tensions emerge when we, we want to be a place that forms beloved community um and we structure ourselves sometimes as kind of like a like, like one of the ways we try to achieve that is by like producing content putting out content um what tensions do you see kind of emerge uh in in <laughs> trying to at once like put out content create things for people like to try to teach people while also creating the space 
for that community to happen in the context of a, of, of rich diversity. <laughs> it's a mess. I think that it's Does that a question makes sense. It's a mess. Community is a mess. Yeah. And, and this is part, you know, I think this, this comes full circle. I think in one of the ways, in one way, the way churches overpromise and underdelivered is we've is that we've told young people, especially that if you live a certain way, you're you're going to like live this good life, and everything's going to be great, nothing bad's going to happen, and we're going to have this perfect utopian community, and and that's just not true. The the reality is is that community is messy, yeah. people mm-hmm. are messy, yep. sin is all over the place, self right selfishness, ambition, appetite, addictions traumas, the way we harm one another, the, our, our need to be right and to win and to be famous and to be known and to be better than others. And right, all those things are going to show up in community. They're going to show up in us. And so are we, are we forming communities that can live in and hold the tension of all those things, not avoid those things, but be honest about those things? We, we, and we need to confront those things. It's, yeah. it's, I'm not talking about it like everyone can just do whatever they want community either. I'm talking about a love does no harm community. So if your words or actions are doing harm, you're doing violence and it needs to stop. So, so we want to be confrontive of those things and teach those things and to the best of our ability say, this is how we understand scripture and the tradition and, and sort of good faith practice and be okay for people to just miss it over and over and over and over again. Yeah. Well, so one of the things I struggle with, Justin, yeah, I, you're somewhat, familiar I'm with the no Enneagram? Expert, but I know my way around the, the numbers. What, 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 yeah, what's your nine. number, by the way? Do you know your number? A nine. Okay. My wife is a nine. Um, I am a counterphobic six, probably five wing, but... Who knows? Whatever. Um, one of the things that uh, resonates with me um, about one of the things that kind of led me to that sort of uh, conclusion, uh, I guess, for our listeners, very brief with counterphobic six. Generally, the main things I sort of struggle with are uh, fear and anxiety, but I, I don't so much deal with them by hiding. I more deal with them by shooting things uh, <laughs> at whatever I think might be behind the bushes. Um, and and it creates inside of myself uh, an unease. It's very hard for me to trust or relax long enough with a community of people or with specific people in general or people in general um, in order for that community to sort of really happen. So like I and, and I, I I will find myself wondering like, is this sort of the best place to be? Am I in the right place? Do I need to, is this like the best relationship? Do I need to, you know, is, is could there be something better? And so but it's, it's the, the sort of constant wondering um, if there are other communities or whatever, places that are safer um, that keeps me from opening myself enough to be able to actually experience the kind of community that makes that place the safe place it really needs to be. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I'm tracking with you. So, what do you say? How do you how do you help people when they've been hurt uh, by churches in the past and they put their guard up, but that that guarded posture keeps them from 
being able to create the kind of connections that can yeah. really ground and so themselves. and I think that's a lot of the work of of pastoral care and even in a, a more intense way even therapy right like if we're talking about people with, who have been hurt and so part of what I can do as a pastor is sit in proxy as like a healthy community space for a person to process wounds and how those wounds are affecting and impacting the current life that they live. And so I think that's a step in the journey. If we're, if we're going to be able to enter in to healthy community right where we are, then we've got to be able to name the things in us that are keeping us from being able to experience that to the full. So pastors can help us with that. Spiritual directors can help us with that. Therapists can help us with that, etc. And that's important because one of the things we would say is, is, is there, and we discovered this in those house churches that I was mentioning on the, on the front end of this conversation. One of the things we discovered in there is, is although there is always like the person, you, you, you know, like usually the one person who was the perpetrator of the abuse, other people in the community knew or were, knew about the harm. In other words, we've been wounded, and that's an extreme example, but all of us have been wounded in community by community. And what this means is healing for us exists in community. That for us to fully be healed, we're going to have to risk again, be vulnerable again, to find the healing and the connection and the belonging that we're looking for. And I think it probably starts right where we are. But we might need some help to name our fears, our anxieties, our areas of mistrust, our triggers, what we feel like when we walk into that room and we're not sure if this is the best place to be or the best people for me to be around. We need to be able to name what's going on in there and where that's coming from. Mm -hmm. And what about that in my story is impacting all these spaces and rooms and people that I'm in and around. And when we're able to do that, hopefully it starts to give us some grounding to manage the way we react out of that so we can, again, risk being open and vulnerable enough to find the belonging and community we're longing for. And I think in that is is healing. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so good. Justin, I want to pivot as we sort of approach 60 minutes here, almost. I guess we got a, we got a few here. So obviously... and. Steve, I don't think I told you this, Justin and I spoke earlier this afternoon, and I think the reality of sort of isolation and, you know, living in the house. So Justin, I don't know if you recall this, but Steven also has uh, yeah. three kids very similar to my kids' ages. Justin, you mentioned obviously you have two and, you know, there are folks at home right now with kids at home, working from home, teaching from home, um, uh, just people are, everyone has their, the way my wife put it, everyone has something that they're sort of grieving, um, you know, at the at very, some at very, very serious levels. Um, others maybe feel less, you know, less heavy about it, but there's just this reality of school getting canceled and, you know, not meeting together as community and not being able to go out in, in our cities. And um, so I think today, you know, part of the reason I reached out to you was just, it, it all caught up with me, I think. And we're only three weeks in, but like last night, it really caught up with me and feeling a, just a sense of feeling trapped. And since we're talking Enneagram, I identify as a, as a seven and sort of this lack of freedom and ability to sort of break out and avoid pain by leaving my scenario and, you know, going, going somewhere, having some experience that can kind of take my mind off of things and actually just having to sit with, with reality. Um, you said something today that really resonated with me just around this idea of becoming 
just talking about you know, realizing ways that we're really even a stranger to to ourselves. And how I think the question you left me with is like, how do we how do we really you know become you know, befriend ourselves during during this time? And um, I just want to give you the floor for a moment for folks that are listening all over the country, actually all over the world. We have folks in Australia, Europe. Um, all over the place that that tune in, wow. um, millions upon millions. All actually. of a sudden, I'm nervous. Um, that, that tune in, I'm kidding. That tune in that are dealing with, dealing with this reality. Like, what is what is actually your like? What is your word like as a as a leader, as a Christian, as um, how can we embrace this time? But also for those dealing with sort of the the reality of um, a lot of the discomfort and and pain for many that that are in this season. Like, what, what can you shed some light on that and just give us yeah. some thoughts? Isolation is a is a reality of what this thing is doing, and and we're experiencing that. I think in at least two ways. First, of course, there's this obvious isolation of I'm not going to my work anymore. I'm not hanging out with my friends. I might be separated from someone I'm dating. I, I imagine there's people separated from dear family members that they they care about, and and so there's that that part of the isolation, and that's real. And then I think there's this other part of isolation that we were talking about today that we, in times of solitude, whether it's voluntary or forced, as this is, we find that we're isolated from ourselves, that, that we are strangers to ourselves, that isolation brings up all the things within us that we've not yet accepted about ourselves, that we've we areas of our life that we've not yet befriended because we've we've judged ourselves for it and so we've run from it we've repressed it we've denied it we've eaten milkshakes instead of dealt with it we've played video games instead of dealt with it or whatever our addiction is those are mine and so milkshakes are, i know <laughs> milkshakes but, and video games okay you know and and so I think a really good question for us in this season and, and, you know, cause I, I think questions are really important. It's like, what question am I really asking myself? Like is internal things start to surface. It's like, what is that pointing to right? Like pain is an indicator that there's something going on. So I think internal pain as an indicator is going, what question am I asking myself? And I think in some ways, the question a lot of us are asking ourselves right now is, who am I? I am a stranger to myself. And so I think we can be on a journey of befriending ourselves and accepting ourselves. I think it's Brennan Manning that said, you know, the challenge of the gospel is to accept your own acceptance as you are, not as you should be. To which I would add, I think in our day and age, it's to accept our own acceptance as we are, not as we should be, and not as we think we should be or not as others think we should be, but as we really are, can we like and love what God likes and loves? Because God likes you and loves you. Mm. And that's really who you are. Can you befriend that? And, and, and that's, I, I've been meditating on this this week. That, you know, this is why we need contempt. We need, we need theological readings of scripture and, and contemplative readings of scripture. Because Paul makes this stunning statement, right? He says, yeah. it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, I know that's, that's a weighty theological statement. But from a contemplative perspective, his testimony is this. 
when I look inside of myself, Christ is living in me. There is no separation. God's not out there somewhere else for me to apprehend. God is within me for me to discover, for me to befriend in a union. And can I live in awareness of that union so that I can live my life from the grace of that union? And I think this for solitude, while it can do so many other things, is presenting an opportunity for many of us to get in touch with, with what is actually most true about who you are. What's most true about who you are. Isn't your Enneagram number? Isn't your personality introvert, extrovert? Those things are true. But what's most true is you are the beloved of God. And when you look inward, God is dwelling there, abiding there in union with you. We don't have to look for God out there somewhere else Mm. to apprehend. But we can use the time of this solitude to discover God within us. We're not separate. We're not alone. We perceive ourselves to be alone. We perceive ourselves to be isolated. We perceive ourselves to be cut off. But we're actually in union with, connected to, with God. Even in this. Come on, man. That's awesome. Amen. So that's... Yeah, man. So great. So great. No, such a good reminder. I think we could go another hour if you wanted to here. <laughs> about 200 other questions. I'll we give just, you whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> we just get started. No, no. I think this is, uh, this is probably a good place to land for this, this conversation. Steven, anything else you want to, you want to add here? No, man. Yeah, we'll, we'll have you back. I think there's there's so many other things that we can discuss as well. And just a message again. I mean, Justin just said this, but for those who listen regularly and um, just bless you, the peace of Christ with you, this is this is certainly a challenging time for everyone. And no no one has this figured out, um, despite what, what Instagram might tell you. Um, but awesome. Well, thanks again, Justin. And uh, everyone who's listening, bless you. Thanks so much. And uh, we'll talk here soon.